coming up this week on Breaking Badness. Today we discuss Deputy Dog not reporting for duty, APT Doxing Group exposes APT 17, next up, Unleash the Cybers, NSA forms Cybersecurity Directorate, and finally, The Real Dark Web, ransomware attack strikes another city. Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness, episode number 21, recorded on July 29th, 2019. I'm your co-host, Kelsey. It's all pun and games until someone gets hurt, LaBelle. With me, co-host Emily, overthinking it, hacker. And last but not least, our special guest, Tarek, doesn't have a creative bone in his body, Sala. Tarek, that in itself was the definition of humility, that response. I love it. <laughs> he loves it. Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to have you here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love coming on here. This is a lot of fun. Excellent, excellent. Perfect. So let's just jump right in here. Our first conversation and topic of the day is Deputy Dog not reporting for duty. Yes, I went there. Deputy Dog. <laughs> Oh, deputy dog. Okay, so Intrusion Truth, an online group of anonymous cybersecurity analysts, have doxxed another cyber espionage hacking group linked to the Chinese government, aka APT17, aka deputy dog, aka tailgater team. So, Emily, I feel like what comes up all the time on our podcast is the naming of APTs, and I would like to name the next APT, also known as. I think that's a good idea. Okay, perfect. Glad we're on the same page there. Um, so <laughs> we'll, we'll jump in. I have a question for you, Emily, which is, it sounds like Intrusion Truth um, has been staying fairly busy these days. So can you start off by providing a short download on this group's previous activities, we'll call them? Activities, yes. They have um, some pretty notable activities that they've done in the past. So Intrusion Truth is not new to the doxing game. They've doxed two Chinese APT groups before, APT3 back in 2017 and APT10 back in 2018. Um, Both of these um, reports released from Intrusion Truth led to indictments against Chinese individuals from the U.S. Department of Justice. In addition, Intrusion Truth has also tied both of those groups back to the Chinese Ministry of State Security, which was a.k.a. the MSS. And that's important because when the APT3 report came out from Intrusion Truth tying them back to the MSS, I believe it was one of the first times that the MSS had been tied to cyber espionage activity against another country. Interesting. And, and with all of that said, have these campaigns in your mind impacted these cyber espionage hacking groups? It doesn't seem that they have too much, unfortunately. Um, The Chinese, for the most part, seem to be relatively unfazed by this doxing and by the indictments um, against their citizens from the Department of Justice um, because the espionage continues from them. The report from Intrusion Truth that came out this month that we're talking about here in a minute is a really good example um, because Intrusion Truth is saying that APT-17 is also associated with the MSS. So it doesn't sound like the MSS was really all that scared by the accusations or the indictments made against them in the past, and they haven't really slowed down. All right. So that's that's curious, and I know this is a common issue. So even if um, attribution occurs, what's, what's the next step outside of these indictments? Which I'm curious if they were able to even extradite those individuals um, from, from China. No, I think in the past these indictments have um, been 
pretty much in paper only in that we know we, you know, the community of people who have read these indictments and the Department of Justice have read the indictments and know who the individuals are. But because they're in China, there's not much that the U.S. government is able to do. If these individuals were to step foot into the U.S. or into another country where we're able to extradite them, then we would be able to um, do something, enforce those indictments. But until that time, they're really just kind of almost just words. Just words. Thoughts for your thoughts, words, and words. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for catching us up and providing some context into the, the, again, previous activities and campaigns led by this group. So let's dive into the report itself. Uh, ZDNet described this as a series of exposés. So what types of information were released in this series of exposés, if you will? It was a series of exposés. It was several um, short blog posts. I think the first one was on July 17th, and the most recent one was just last week. Um, and... They had varying levels of information about the individuals that they're claiming are involved with APT-17. So first of all, they have three separate blog posts that talk about three individuals, um, Guo Lin, Wang Jingwei, and Zhang Xiaoyang. I don't speak Chinese, so I apologize to anyone who felt that was a complete butchering of those names. Um, in addition, the Intrusion Truth gang um, tied them to three businesses, Jinan Angchuang Information Technology Company Limited, Jinong Quanjing Technology Company Limited, and Jinong Fanglang Information Technology Company Limited. Um, that was three separate blog posts where they were managing to find out information about those three individuals and tie them to those three businesses. And then where it got interesting is that they had another blog posts that they tied those businesses back to the MSS. Um, they found code that is known to have been made by Zhang um, to Zox RPC, which is a malware that has been known to be used by Chinese APTs in the past. Um, it's been known to be used by Black Coffee, which is another name for APT-17, which at this point should be known as also known as because they just have a lot of names. Um, in addition to all that, interestingly enough, Intrusion Truth found a... Um, like a sale brochure, a pricing guide, a, a list of data for sale. And the data didn't just come from Western companies, and it wasn't just on Western individuals. So Intrusion Truth didn't have a solid answer for why that was, but they did speculate that either APT-17 had a um, remit from the Chinese government to spy on Chinese citizens, or potentially that they'd kind of gone rogue and were selling Chinese data on the side. So mm-hmm. it's not uncommon for... Um, state-sponsored actors to moonlight as criminals, cyber criminals. Um, but I, so I can't speak for whether or not that's what was going on in this case, but Intrusion Truth at least felt that this pricing guide was tied strongly enough to APT-17 to be associated with it and not necessarily just with one or two individuals that um, work for APT-17 um, during the day. Absolutely. Thank you for unpacking all of that. I know there was a lot to drag out of those exposés. There was, and there's actually a lot more that I just don't have time to talk about, so I highly recommend reading them all for a really, in my opinion, good um, breakdown of their, into their investigation as to how they tied all these individuals back to those businesses. And on that note, 
if you wouldn't mind just pulling out some key conclusions from the report, because you just provided so much information. So just a quick highlight from your reading. Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest key conclusion from this report is that APT-17 is related to the MSS, meaning, of course, that like APT-3 and APT-10, APT-17 has been acting on orders from the Chinese government. I think a smaller um, key conclusion that I found interesting myself was that um, this quote, I think, sums it up nicely. This is a direct quote from the report. They say, why the MSS insists on using sloppy contracted hackers is beyond us here at Intrusion Truth, but the pattern is undeniable. And I think that's an interesting uh, conclusion because in all three cases, ABT 3, 10, and 17, the um, doxing was enabled because of contracted hackers that had some OPSEC fail in the past that allowed us us, the security community, to tie them back to this activity. So it's just interesting that they're kind of being so sloppy. Interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you for that uh, that summary there, the SparkNotes version. Something I'm curious about as a security researcher, Emily, is the attribution can be sort of known as security's other A word, <laughs> like the other bad word in this space. So how confident are you and what was uncovered in terms of attributing this um, to a specific group, and is is this um, is this group credible? The doxing group. Yeah, that's a good question. I think attribution is considered a bad word only because it can be used so sloppily, and because sometimes it's asked for or required when it's not actually important. So for regular daily um, work that people are doing, that SOC analysts are doing um, for companies, when they're asked to spend time to get individual level attribution on just like a phishing email, that's not really something that's important or worth their time. And it's in those cases, it's not even really going to help um, in the remediation process. In those cases, motivational attribution, which by that I mean, is it cybercrime, is it espionage, et cetera, that's probably enough to kind of move forward and feel like you know what's going on. And maybe in some cases, country-level attribution, such as we believe this is from China, from Russia, um, might be a little more important. But in most cases, on a day-to-day basis, that's the most level of attribution you're ever going to need. It's not really important on a day-to-day basis to know that this guy working for APT-17 for the MSS in China um, did it. However, in this case, intrusion truth did go all the way down to the individual level, which is kind of scary from a research perspective. I certainly would not want to release a article or a series of articles like they did unless I was 100% certain of my results. I would not want to be doxing a person um, unless I was 100% sure they were the person that was behind these attacks. I'm sure Intrusion Truth feels the same way. Because of that, and because of their very clearly written um, analysis process, investigation process, tying these individuals back to these businesses and tying the businesses back to APT-17, I do feel that they, um, I do feel that there is at least medium to high confidence in their attribution. Additionally, another thing that helps is that they have a good track record with APT-3 and APT-10. After those reports came out, they were um, verified by other um, researchers, I know for APT, I don't remember if it was three or ten, but I know Recorded Future did a a whole other um, research into that same topic and came to the same conclusion. And it was it was good enough for the Department of Justice to have high confidence in it enough to indict these individuals on an individual level. So because of that, I do feel that this is a group that can be pretty well trusted in their analysis of these sorts of um, 
activities. Yeah, I don't know if it's um, possible to be more credible, quote unquote, than that. Right. Um, so, perfect. Thank you. That was a very in-depth analysis. Well done. Um, so the final question I really wanted to dig into here really quick um, that we've touched on a little bit throughout our conversation is it's pretty clear that nation-sponsored hacking isn't going away anytime soon. I do hope we get to a point where it's like NASCAR and people are wearing like a yeah. jacket with their nation state. It's like, this hat brought to you by China. <laughs> I think we could get there. That'd be great. But more importantly, considering how difficult it can be to indict one outside of a, a nation's jurisdiction, how do you feel legislation will change or need to change in order to hold organizations and nations accountable? Yeah, we kind of touched on this earlier about how the U.S. hasn't really been too shy about indicting these people in the past, but there's just no legal framework for us to actually, us, the U.S. government, to actually do anything once they've indicted those individuals because China has no legal obligation to do anything. They don't have any legal obligation to um, extradite those individuals to the U.S. or to prosecute them for example, under Chinese law. So there's there's not much we can do right now. As far as what needs to change, I I don't know that there's one simple like legal tweak that'll help us fix this because this is a much larger one simple tweak. Right. <laughs> this is much larger and it's not just cyber um or or cyber espionage related. If you if you think from a any kind of national criminal level, I'm not sure that the US is going to want to be a part of laws that would allow us to do anything with these individuals because then we'd have to agree to the flip side as well, which is any Mm. U.S. individuals who are conducting espionage on behalf of the U.S. government would then be subject to laws in the countries upon which they're spying. So I'm not sure that's going to happen. I know that back in 2014 or whenever that Obama and President Xi had their like um, cyber... We're not going to hack each other. Deal. Um, even that, like Is that, the official that name? was, I believe, <laughs> yes, the official name, and sign that in blood. We're not going to hack each other. Um, that did bring the the overall like level of attacks down from China, but even that didn't really have any kind of um, legal framework for prosecution if that occurred from right. a nation state level. So there's just we're, there's just no. There's a lot it's of... It's an uphill battle. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> lots to think of there and lots to continue talking about. And um, I want to give, give Tarek a chance here, uncharacteristically quiet as we talk through this. <laughs> and I want to hear your thoughts on the hoodie rating. And just before we jump into this, a quick reminder of the hoodie rating. We're looking at a scale of zero to 10 hoodies. Don't have to be integers. We like to get creative. Um, and And really what we're trying to get a sense of is basically how little or how much you should be concerned about this article and it, will it be something you should be expecting to touch your own network um and so 10 is i hope that you've already thrown your your headphones off and you're running sprinting to your desk <laughs> to remediate 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 and zero is maybe a nice little a little giggle and moving on <laughs> to the next thing so that's a perfect giggle. No, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> what a plan, a giggle plan. Okay, so with that in mind, Tarek, what are your thoughts? What's your hoodie rating here? Yeah, you know, I'd, I'm going to give this one like a 2 out of 10 hoodie rating because um, I always think it's really interesting when we hear APT because the A stands for advanced. And yet time and time again, I think one of my favorite mantras to say is that you don't need to be sophisticated as a bad guy to be effective. Mm-hmm. I could steal 
grandma's credit card from really simple phishing emails. I can create the most unsophisticated, sloppy malware, but it'll still compromise a nation state or a nation, excuse me. Um, so I think it's really interesting that we still correlate APT with the advanced part um, when we see this kind of stuff from the MSS and um, from uh, the CIA, too. When the uh, CIA leaks came out, it was very very similar. We had really sloppy code that was outsourced to like a third party uh, contracting company. And uh, if you've ever worked with contracting companies before, it's always, you don't really buy the quality there uh, necessarily. <laughs> Sometimes it's like the lowest bidder, right? Um, so that's why I give this one like a two out of a 10. Um, I just think it's really, uh, I think it's just kind of funny where we're just breaking down these stereotypes in the security community, the more things get leaked, right? So it all kind of just bleeds over together from not advanced and not unsophisticated. It's this really kind of murky gray water of just weirdness. Just weirdness. Just weirdness. WPT. Weirdly persistent threats. <laughs> I like I don't think that. I'll catch on. <laughs> well, thank you, Tarek. And uh-huh. Emily, what do you think? Yeah, I agree that uh, APT is almost becoming like a misnomer for these uh, groups, for at least some of them in the in the espionage realm. And I. I know it's the it's kind of the de facto term of choice, but I I do think at times that APT has become synonymous with nation level espionage when um, perhaps they are not advanced enough to really be considered an APT. Of course, this group really is advanced compared to like you know some other groups, but definitely there's there are sloppy mistakes and stuff. They were easily doxxed, and it's just. It's just interesting. I do think, though, that um, in general, this group is still um, somewhat of a threat, um, which would give it, you know, a couple of hoodies. But on the flip side, I almost want to give some goodies to Intrusion Truth for Mm. um, their really thorough and detailed analysis. And a reminder, goodies are similar to hoodies, except cookies. No, they're not edible. <laughs> no, I didn't know about this cookie system. Yeah. Am or I saying cookie? Goodie, goodie, goodies. But okay. we decided potentially that as a hoodie is marked by a hood hoodie sweatshirt. Oh, perhaps that's right. we could imagine some cookies in our brain. Yeah. So a goodie is like <laughs> if if like a phishing email is like one hoodie, then like someone stopping that phishing email and doing the right thing would be like one goodie. Nice. If that makes sense. I and like so it. I think that intrusion truth the the moral of the story, yes, APT seventeen is bad, maybe a few hoodies, a couple hoodies, but I think the moral of the story here is that intrusion truth did a really thorough analysis and a good investigation in order to find um proof that the Chinese government is still conducting this kind of espionage and all the way down to the individual level, which I think deserves at least a few goodies. Four I don't know, goodies. maybe higher, but I just, you for some reason here. I throw out hoodies like they're like candy, but with goodies, I'm like, now let's see how many you deserve. Like I'm like <laughs> a lot tighter with the goodie scale, but I like it. I like your I use agree. of goodie. Well done. Perfect. Awesome. Well, this is actually a perfect conversation segue into our next topic here which is Unleash the Cybers, NSA Form Cybersecurity Directorate. So the National Security Agency, a.k.a. NSA, has announced its intention to create a cybersecurity directorate this fall in a bid to defend the U.S. against foreign adversaries. I wonder wonder what that could be in reference to. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, Tarek, perhaps a good place to start is if you can provide us with some insight into the intent behind this announcement. 
Yeah, I really think this is an outcome that we uh, naturally see happening from the um, FBI's investigation uh, spearheaded by Mueller. Um, I think everybody's blatantly aware of that. Um, and the impact the Russians had on influencing our elections and kind of compromising our democracy, really. Um, so one interesting thing that I found out was the NSA developed a special team called the Russia Small Group, um, which is more like a specialized unit, um, cybersecurity unit that was dedicated to mitigating um, continued Russian election interference. Um, and this was spun up back in 2018. And um, apparently, uh, they were really successful in mitigating some other Russian um, election uh, interference during the mid-year elections, which is um, kind of nice. They saw a lot of success there. And so um, in April this year, uh, that unit was made to be a permanent one and now kind of falls under the leadership of the newly created uh, NSA uh, directorate. And so the leader of the NSA directorate is um, Ann Neuberger, who um, previously served as the deputy director of that Russia small group unit. So we could see some really interesting correlations there between the leadership and kind of the mission statements of these previous groups. And we can kind of connect the dots there to kind of see where the direction of the NSA is going um, and their kind of their goals, right? So this is a clear indicator that um, as an output of the Mueller investigation, we have a unit now that's I mean, the name is right there, the Russia Small Group, right? It's pretty clear what they're focused on. Right. You know, <laughs> it's right in the name. <laughs> they're not pulling punches, that's for sure. Absolutely. And when do they think this group will become operational? And and you already mentioned who will lead the team, which is fantastic. Yeah. So according to the NSA's uh, public statement on it, uh, they're looking to go live October 1st in, of this year. So it's coming up pretty quick. That's a pretty quick deadline there. I'm, I'm expecting that they've done some work before the announcement to <laughs> yeah. prepare to properly roll out um, that unit. Well, uh, those elections are coming up soon, so yeah, the earlier sure. the better, right? Absolutely. And it's not like the Russians are stopping anytime soon. The so. Russians right. are like, let's give them till the first. We'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> it's vacation. What are you going to do? <laughs> uh, so and it sounds like there's been some debate, if you will, surrounding this um, directorate. So has... Has there been any commentary from infosecurity professionals? What What are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, you know what's interesting is that the NSA in a post-Snowden era really doesn't have the best light, um, you know, against it. Uh, I think a lot of people rightly, uh, you know, view the NSA as uh, an adversary in some lights. Uh, I know after the Patriot Act and the Snowden leaks, we're all very, you know, uh, apprehensive about them. Um, but I think this really boils down to your personal bias. Um, you know, for me, I was very against the Patriot Act. Um, but at the same time, um, I'm really against the Russian election interference as well. Um, I think it was a horrible move. Uh, we're, you know, having our own democracy being compromised. And, um, you know, we need to be able to stand up to this. So I think this is a move in the right direction. Um, I think this is the move that we need to do. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, polling like the rest of the security, uh, security community that I'm a part of, everyone's in general agreeance. But at the same time, I think everyone's blatantly aware of the NSA and what they've done in the past. So it's this weird kind of dynamic right now of like, this is good, but I don't know if I necessarily trust you, but I kind of do. It's weird. Yeah. And I think the conversation that's always drums up in my head is the sort of tension that exists between security and privacy. Um, and yeah. similar to our conversations around cyber warfare and how that will affect legislation, question mark, is the same for technology, right? And also the way that our government interacts with citizens as well as folks outside, obviously, with the, the offensive nation state um, efforts, we'll say. So 
Uh, that's that's interesting to know your feedback. Um, I know you have your ear to the ground, obviously, with the security community, so I appreciate um, uh, your perspective on that. And so I guess my, my final question for you is really how do you feel these types of directorates or groups that are coming together will – how will they impact cyber warfare? Yeah, yeah. No, so it's all about upping the sophistication, right? It's going back to, you know, even the medieval days, right, where you have somebody's responsible for building – you know, castle defenses. I'm going to build a moat. Now that the moat's there, people that are attacking the castle need to figure out a way to get around the moat. So we, this is still like part of that attacker defense evolution. This isn't going away. So as we're upping how sophisticated and granular teams and these surgical teams are getting spun up to handle these specific problems, you're going to have the alternative happen where you're going to have um, continued improvements, continued efficiencies in a lot of the attacker teams as well too. Um, so maybe less outsourcing of code, maybe more hiring of uh, sophisticated threat actors. Um, so it's an arms race, absolutely. And it's, it, it's, it hasn't stopped and it's going to keep going and going. I have a follow-up question. What is today's security moat? I would say, <laughs> I don't want to get too buzzwordy, but I think machine learning on EDR is like the new moat, in my opinion. Absolutely. It's like comparing it to like signature-based AV where things were easily bypassed. Now you have like machine learning backed AV, which is really difficult to bypass. It's doable, of course. You could still get around the moat, but it's a game changer. Security vendors out there in that space, um, you can pay us, actually Tark specifically, for royalties if you would like to use that as your tagline, security's moat. <laughs> we will be accepting emails and yeah. then a bid. Signature-based <laughs> stuff is more like a drawbridge where you're like, oh, that one looks bad. I right. just made a drawbridge <laughs> with my arm thing. Yeah, your arm thing. My arm thing. That kind this. of arms race. Uh, <laughs> perfect. Okay, so Emily, hoodies and goodies. What are you thinking for this? I think this director? is another goodie. I think this is probably the first week that we've ever had two goodie stories. I must have like been in a good mood when I was looking at these <laughs> last week. But um, I think this is a goodie um, for a lot of the reasons that Tark was talking about with the. How you know we we all have some level of uh, suspicion when it comes to the NSA, but I think overall, their their mission is to protect America, and and especially with this this group and with like the proof of the small group, the Russia small group's existence, it shows that they are at least trying to focus on maintaining democracy. Of course, we'll we've yet we we are. We'll have to wait and see, I suppose, how this plays out with privacy and with American citizens' data and stuff like that. But um, I think those the, little things, those you know, minor <laughs> details. But I think that overall, the intention at least seems positive and therefore deserves some goodies. Um, how many cyber cookies, aka goodies? Hmm. I feel like I'm trying to compare it because last story I gave four goodies. And so I'm like, is this more or less? Mm. I think uh, I'm going to go with three. Three cookies it is. I mean, goodies. I re I think I really want a cookie. I'm right considering <laughs> going to get a cookie when we're done <laughs> recording this podcast. So, <laughs> All right, Tark, what do you think? You, now that I know about the goodie system, uh, I'm going to give this 10 uh, Oreo cyber cookie. <laughs> Oreo cyber cookie. Yes. Oreos are my favorite. Oh um, God, that sounds good. Yeah, right I would give this a ten. Uh, and, and alternatively, I want to throw like a sprinkling of uh, hoodies in there too, because it is the NSA, and there is that slight distrust, right? Um, so I want to give it like 
10 uh, Oreo Cyber Cookies, but at the same time, I want to throw like three hoodies in there as well. Just because you've already kind of touched on it, Kelsey, of like the, you know, what is the data collection look like for the NSA? Are they going to leverage Americans like personal data to be able to do attribution and mitigation of some of these Russian attacks? Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, the Russians could definitely evolve and maybe they already are where they're using American infrastructure to conduct these attacks. And so the NSA might need to grab American data to investigate. And we know their hand in the cookie jar from Snowden. So it's a little, ah, I see the cookie. Yeah. So, you know, we'll yet to be determined. (laughs) You know those, like, is it the fudge-dipped Oreos or whatever where they're covered in chocolate? Imagine those but wearing hoodies instead of chocolate. That is adorable. Delicious. You're welcome for that visual. (laughs) Thank you. Also, can I just say I did not know there was a Russia small group and, like, holy dream job, Batman. Yeah, that's a good one. NSA, call me. (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) All right. Well, let's let's just go into our final article before we lose Emily here, <laughs> um, which is the real dark web. Um, so the city of Johannesburg in South Africa is battling to get electricity back. Spoiler alert: they have it back uh, to some customers left in the dark by a ransomware infection. So uh, utility company City Power today. Um, points for creativity there in their company name. <laughs> Confirm news reports that file scrambling malware had invaded and knackered its systems. Oh boy. I've never got you that good before. Emily. That was a good that one. That was a good feeling. <laughs> All right, Emily, let's start with you. So, can you provide some details on the this ransomware attack and, and who was impacted? Sure. So as you mentioned, City Power, the utility company in Johannesburg, South Africa, they were the ones who were actually infected with this ransomware. And while that would seem to be bad enough that they were the ones uh, impacted, it, of course, spread beyond that. Um, It managed to affect the part of their network that allows prepaid customers to refill their account. So what this meant was that some customers were then unable to refill their account and therefore had their power shut off. And could that have been any worse? Why, yes, it could have. This was going on in the middle of winter in a particularly cold spell. So um, it is winter in South Africa right now, and apparently it is a particularly cold winter, and these individuals were unable to have their power. So I would say they were the most impacted. That seems like a fair conclusion. To Thanks. Be- you're welcome. <laughs> So, Tariq, have there been any statements from the city or? Yeah, you know, I was reading some of like the generic uh, boilerplate responses of, you know, apologizing about the inconvenience, which is, you know, pretty standard to be expected. But uh, their PR team really kind of goofed on the messaging, at least in my opinion, on the next part. So, uh, quote, customers should not panic as none of their details were compromised. And, you know, while that may be true, your PIA might not have been impacted, but when the power goes out, a lot of people can be impacted. So uh, do we have calculations of, you know, any deaths we can associate with this? Because losing power to medical infrastructure can literally kill people. You know, that's a huge impact, right? Um, so I think this comes across really tone deaf from the uh, the PR team over there in Joburg. But, you know, there's non-obvious ramifications too. So if you, you know, impact like a traffic light system and two cars get in a wreck and, you know, somebody's like, you know, grotesquely injured or killed or there's all kinds of bad things that can happen. What about robberies when stores go down? And um, so I feel like customers should panic. I think customers have the right to panic when the power goes out. Um, I think Joburg really needs to step it up and talk about what they can do to enact like so this doesn't happen again. Like they owe that as a, a big PR response 
Um, and so, you know, after years of doing instant response, that's one thing that really matters a lot is how you um, keep your customer trust, right? And a lot of that is done through like proper PR messaging. And this isn't it. I kind of feel like I should be panicking after that. Wow. I know. Um, to the people of Joburg, it's time to panic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we try to stay away from flood, but in this case, it's time to panic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of Emily's favorite, dare I say, favorite television show, The X-Files. There was an episode you saw that... Uh... An episode I've seen multiple times, every rewatch of The X-Files, <laughs> my yearly rewatch. Yeah, the one... Um, Ooh, I can't remember the name of the episode, but it has Jack Black in it, and his friend is the kid that can control electricity because he got struck by lightning. And in the beginning, he's in an intersection, and he turns both of the lights to green at the same time so two cars crash and causes a major accident. So, What noise does the person make when they do that? <laughs> Let me clarify. They actually don't do that in the episode. This is just Kelsey making fun of me. <laughs> no, I'm just... Helping show off your com- uh, your comedic prowess, Emily. I think it's, what is it called? D-P-O, D-P. We've lost her. It is. It's D-P-O. I hate myself for knowing that off the top of my head. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good stuff. All right, Emily. Now that we've gotten our reference to the X-Files. And yeah, very important. That it, check that off the list. What are two things organizations should be doing right now to mitigate a ransomware attack? So I almost hate answering this question because I feel like the answer has been like the same answer for years and it's clearly not helping. But the first thing that's important is backups. 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 That was an example. Backups. I say it, it's just like everyone knows to back up their stuff. And I feel like for years now, ransomware advice has been back up your stuff. And yet every time these ransomware events happen, the the affected company or city um, is left like SOL because they don't have backups or they oops our backups suck or we don't have a backup that actually matters like why is this still the case I don't know I'm getting a little worked at because this always happens and they end up having to um, spend a lot of time trying to mitigate I think ransomware incidents tend to take so long to recover from because um, the affected company doesn't have proper backups in place and I know recently there's been a trend of some cities actually paying um, the ransom, which is never a good idea. Well, which is most of the time not a good idea. I know the FBI has a, um, their their statement on on ransomware is do not pay the ransom. I think my second bit of advice of what organizations should be doing right now is injury training. And I've actually beaten this horse to death before on this podcast, this very podcast, (laughs) but training your employees to not enable macros, for example, on external emails and to be suspicious of attachments and external emails is key. A lot of people have jobs that require them to frequently receive emails and to click on external emails, but you just have to train them about the common threats associated with ransomware, such as attachments with macros, unexpected links, um, that they could be suspicious of clicking. In addition, and this is the part that always gets missed, you need to have a procedure in place that enables them to report suspicious emails and get them back if they're not malicious. Tarek, do you have any security advice there? Yeah, so I think it's really, um, I think it's really interesting um, how we see ransomware continue to affect multiple countries, multiple people, and multiple services. Um, when ransomware, I mean, it boils down to a couple like areas to really mitigate it, right? If you want to like mitigate it effectively. So number one, it really comes down to hiring security people. A lot of these places rely on the good intentions 
of like systems administrators who really aren't specialized and have the skills in you know uh, cybersecurity. A lot of them are very focused on uptime, right? I want to make sure my email's up, but they're not really reading the latest uh, reports of like, you know, hey, the uh, eternal blue exploit's publicly available now. And um, look, it's getting weaponized. A lot of them might casually read it, but a lot of them don't have the bandwidth or the skills to be able to like effectively respond. So number one, I think it's important for organizations to at least hire some security folks. And uh, number two, um, this is where I think anybody in tech has a responsibility and that's like proper vuln management, right? Vulnerability management and security hygiene, you know, um, it's uh, very rare for a zero day to happen uh, for an extended period of time. Usually in the community, in the software communities, we see a patch out there relatively quickly. So it really comes down to patching, right? That's a time and time again thing, kind of like what Emily was talking about, about the training, right? This is a something uh, everybody kind of keeps hammering on over and over. So patch your systems. Um, and then I think lastly, one thing that I'd recommend is get yourself a decent antivirus, right? Like I talked a little bit about like those machine learning based um, EDR solutions. Those are great. Um, but, you know, this comes down to hiring good security folks to test this stuff. And a lot of these ransomwares, they're making the same API calls over and over again. And it's really easy to detect. But if you don't have anything on there, you know, they're not going to be able to run rampant. So those are some basics that you can do in addition to what Emily was talking about to really kind of up the bar and lower the risk of, you know, getting uh, a ransomware attacked. Up the bar, lower the risk. I like that. Yeah. You are just full of taglines today, Tarek. Uh, I mean, all the time. I do. We're just capturing it. <laughs> capturing it live. Well, okay, so let's just rumble into the hoodies and goodies scale. Um, I know this is really unusual to have a metropolitan area, you know, have a ransomware attack. So you can think long and hard about... <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> a sad joke only because it's sad that it's... Not it's rare. A, yeah, it's yeah. not a rare thing at all. It's not like steak. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> all right. So, <laughs> Tark, what what are your thoughts? Hoodies and goodies. I'm For, assuming hoodies. <laughs> oh, there is no goodies here. Uh, <laughs> so, shout out to Joe Berg's uh, PR team. You guys just won yourself 10 hoodies. Congrats. Woo! Yeah, no, no bueno on that PR response. Uh, maybe I might have missed some other communique from them, but from what I did see, it looked pretty bad. Like... You know, I don't think they had a real good grasp of the whole situation. So, big uh, hoodie X and A there. <laughs> hoodie X and A, I like it. What about you, Emily? Yeah, I think overall, I was um, planning on giving this a six hoodie rating. I don't think that most people listening will need to jump up from their desks and go remediate something in their own uh, environment. But I do think that this is a six hoodie event because it. Because of the ramifications, it shows that ransomware, regular old ransomware, caused some individuals in Johannesburg to be freezing in the night in the winter with no power. And so that just shows the implications here of not having your security posture where it needs to be for even something as, excuse me, as common and simple as ransomware. And in addition, I agree the um, the response. While I'm so glad to hear that City Power um, is back online and customers have power, that doesn't really make up for the fact that they um, had this, as Tark mentioned, completely tone-deaf response and didn't really seem to care about the well-being, the literal well-being of their customers' um, health and safety. So, Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for your time on the podcast today. Um, Tark, especially you, I know you're, you're guesting, you're coming out. 
of your day-to-day work to help us out. We really appreciate it. And we love having your voice here on the podcast. Thanks, yeah. guys. Thanks, yeah. Dark. Anytime. Yes. Thank <laughs> you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just so you all know, just a quick reminder, we will be at um, summer camp this year. So this upcoming week, we will have a, an episode of Breaking Badness for you coming out on Wednesday. But um, myself, Emily Tarek, will be around summer camp, too. Um, come say hi. We have some stickers. Yeah, we do. Get your stickers. Um, we'll also exciting. be doing some interviews. Yeah, very exciting, indeed. Um, they're pretty cool, if I say so myself. Um, and um, Emily's got one on her machine now. <laughs> But we'll also be doing interviews with a few folks. So if you do have interest in doing an interview here with the uh, folks at Breaking Badness, you can shoot me an email at K-L-A-B-E-L-L-E at DomainTools.com. Well, you can also contact us over this um, this social media channel. It's really new. What is it? Oh, Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> the you Twitter. Can, the Twitter. Um, so you can contact Emily at... At Dreadphones. Dreadphones. D-R-E-A-D-P-H-O-N-E-S, like headphones, but with dread. <laughs> See what you did there. Yeah, I'm puns and roses. There's an extra s in there. Puns and roses with an extra s. Um, Tim Helming is Tim Helming. <laughs> Good work, Tim Helming. And Tarek, I know you're not. I'm never gonna share my Twitter handle. Sorry, guys. But if you Respect. find it, I would. Big props if you can find it. <laughs> we'll give you a free sticker if you can find Tarek's. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to motivate that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again, both you, for your time, and we'll see you next week. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at blog.domaintools.com. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. That's it for this week. We'll see you again next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click. <laughs>